Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the program today, we are going to be talking about a brand new family festival called the Merrybeck Family Festival, a new festival of arts, music and performance, also including some workshops and installations that's going to be running from the 18th to the 24th of September over at the Brunswick Library, Brunswick Town Hall and the Coonahan Gallery, all neatly clustered into one place and most events will be free or low cost. So if you have young nibblings or small children, then it could be the festival for you. Uh, time for us to, uh, to be joined by a couple of guests. My first guests for the morning uh, with me in the studio, Tim Snedden and Jeff Actum, uh, here to talk about a brand new festival for Melbourne focused in and around the city of Marybeck, formerly known as the city of Moreland, uh, a name which we've now kind of just gone, mm, maybe not culturally sensitive. Um, uh, and why do we need a new festival though, guys? Melbourne has dozens of them, like literally hundreds. I think... Um where did this this came from sort of a hypothesis on a car trip about we were traveling together and i think one thing led to another and we got to talking about um a few things one was the cost so uh, myself being as a parent and, and then also as a performer myself putting on works performing arts works for families so the cost of tickets um, and then another was um, having to travel to all these different places that we were going why can't we have sort of more things happening at home and then, and then I think that idea that maybe there might be the hypothesis being that there might be a demand quite locally in Brunswick and Marybeck for this type of work. If we can make works for families available at low cost, um, that in fact there might be parents and, and carers that are keen to yeah, see. Yeah, we were sort of driving hours and hours to all these regional venues, which is really special and amazing. But you know, a lot of the, a lot of our own neighbourhood don't realise that all, all of us live. All those touring artists live in that same city, and 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 we could be servicing them in the same way that we do um, elsewhere around the country at an affordable price, without having to go into the art centre or something like that. Which is a lot of the choices parents have to make in that school holiday period. Yeah, yeah and because some of those big kid shows are quite pricey, and then particularly by the time you buy a program or some merchandise or whatever, it all adds up. So the idea of a family festival in which most events are either free or very low cost, particularly with the cost of living crisis we're all feeling at the moment, belts being tightened left, right and centre. Uh, it is then clearly going to be appetising, but what about the program itself? Talk to us about the program you've pulled together and how to make that appetising. We were pretty uh, determined not to have any sort of uh, face painting or jumping castles or anything sort of... Um... No, not to knock that and those that do. That's, that just wasn't the the vibe that we wanted to go for. Yeah. Something, yeah. So, Tim, something slightly less traditional? Yeah, we're talking for some sort of or, um, alternative and, and, and quite... Um, hybrid or multidisciplinary, which is really exciting for us, especially as children's theatre makers who work across a range of forms. We don't we strongly believe that you can have high quality artistic experiences that are family friendly. But um yeah, so we're doing we've created we've commissioned a virtual reality cinema. We're um creating an enormous uh, intergalactic uh, uh installation slash interactive puppetry uh set in the town hall. We've got uh clown shows that are, you know posing as magic shows and we've got theatre shows posing as puppet shows yeah we've got an author Elsa Wilde who's coming and doing a sort of improvised um, story with the kids so they shout out ideas for the plot line and the characters and then she works with them and so we've partnered her with a, a musician who's going to do sort of live music so we've tried to kind of create special a bit one-off events as well mm. like the town hall takeover where we're going to have this spacescape so kids can come and they'll, they'll walk into Brunswick town hall on the Sunday and they'll will have created this sort of intergalactic space with um, projections and giant aliens and animatronic puppets, and then they'll be able to make their little spaceship um, puppet and fly it around this space. Mm. Uh, the VR cinema was another one where we wanted to try and create something that was um, 
I guess a bit um, dipping our toe into some things that are kind of happening or maybe not happening in the metaverse. Uh, not so much the metaverse as just creating, uh, using some of this technology to create experiences that are, are quite uh, special. So so for the VR Cinema Clowns, we've, um, we've worked with local performers, puppeteers and clowns to create a couple of very short um, performances, sequences that are based in and around the laneways and nooks and crannies of Brunswick and then uh, we've made that into a short sort of 10 minute film so that now the kids can and will, will be able to come to the festival and sit down and uh, whack, a, whack a screen on their face and look around and experience um, the performance in, in 360 um, mm. what else we have we've got workshops happening all weekend as well we kind of went in a, I guess with the first iteration of a festival, like to go back to your first question, like why, why now, why this festival, there's so many festivals. I think what we're trying to do is, is, is whack a bunch, you know, throw a bunch of spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks. There's some, most everything at the festival is, is free to attend, but, but ticketed. But then some things we did wanted to have uh, a, a low cost price point as well. So that, well, obviously it helps the budget work as well, but also there is something with just having paid even a small amount for something, it kind of, ensures that people show up when they mm. <laughs> when they've booked a ticket mm. so there's there's a mixture of theater performances and then those workshops and then the um uh something like the musical story time which is at Coonhan gallery actually mm. where we, uh, is another one um where we've got a librarian reading um stories but then we thought hey that's not enough just to be reading stories let's see if we can sort of in a semi-improvised way have um, a classical musician play along with the story and, and create a bit of a soundscape in mm. a in a kind of more chilled out mm. vibe in the gallery so we're, we're kind of putting everything up on the wall there to try and see for for year two hopefully that's going to come in the future um to see what sort of you know has worked everything's based in the brunswick um that that's sort of our little brunswick hub so so town hall brunswick town hall which a lot of people might actually not actually know has this space right beside it um called the atrium and then that's connected internally to cunahan gallery which is also connected internally to brunswick library so mm. everybody can sort of meander around our festival hub and over these uh uh these these blocks it's uh 22 23 24 um well the most events are are, are the saturday sunday of september 23 24 september people will be able to come down and you can uh, you can come down uh, in the afternoons and be able to sort of pick and choose of, of some of the free activities. And then if, if, if that's working for you, you can come into the town hall and see um, one of two different um, uh, theater performances that are on as well. So I guess we're just trying to figure out what uh, – have a taste. We're, have, we're doing a little dance with the families of Mary Beck and the carers and trying to see, like, well, what, what is it quite that you need? We think that m- maybe there, there's a gap here for some, some low-cost family theater. Um, and this is a this is a new way that we're going to try and put that out. Mm. And Tim, in terms of making work that appeals to young people mm. and children and families, one you the, ch- the challenge there is you're looking at a fairly broad age range in a way. If you are making family friendly work, yeah, it's not just for kids. It's got to satisfy the parents to a degree totally. as well. Yeah, but there is a lot of pretty trite, pretty shallow work out there for, for kids and families that tends to talk down to them a little. There's also brilliant work being made, mm. particularly by some adult artists, for example, who've gone, oh, let's diversify our income at a fringe yeah. and um, do a, a children's show. The British performer Legato Chocolat, for example, mm. uh, and his show Ducky is a great example yeah, of that. Yeah. Uh, the Listies, who started out as the list operators doing that's shows right. for grown-ups at fringe, went, oh, we'll do kids' shows. That's right. And now that's their target audience. Talk to us about how you actually create a, a, an artistically rich and um, compelling show for children as opposed to a kind of dumbed down dancing around on stage in colourful jumpers. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I might even talk about Jeff next to him. Is When Jeff started Bunk Puppets, which we're also both members of, um, he created a show that was really, you were imagining, for sort of cabaret-style um, variety spots that was shadow puppetry that was non-verbal and um, highly physical. And by chance, I think I'm talking on behalf of you again, you and we realised that actually that's just the elements of any good accessible theatre. And I think family theatre is just accessible theatre. It doesn't talk down to people. It also doesn't over-intellectualise. It doesn't exclude. It's not too... um, it's not too difficult, yeah, but also can be beautiful, touching, transformative. So that's sort of where our theatre practice is heavily based. It also means because we made a lot of nonverbal theatre, we started travelling around the world doing these shows um, and we're lucky to get invited into a lot of um, family theatre circuits in different countries where you meet like-minded artists and I think uh, unintentionally we've sort of become real advocates for 
high quality children's theatre that isn't yeah it's not patronising it's not um, you know I mean I love the Wiggles but it's not the Wiggles so yeah I think in making this festival we've sort of extended that philosophy to a programming and commissioning and curating uh, context we've um, got some amazing friends who are similarly minded we've created this installation with um, the intergalactic soundscape our opening ceremony we're going to have the some speakers talking but then we're going to have a local choir sing for 40 minutes and have these reflective surfaces for kids to create and draw and have color textures that will be reflected on the roof creating this sort of interactive light um, Experiment, which is part of the same philosophy, I guess, is that every moment should be interactive and accessible and exciting and enriching, I guess. Yeah. I'm speaking with Tim Snedden and Jeff Actum about the Merrybeck Family Festival, which is a new festival of art, music and performance, uh, including workshops and installations running from the 18th to the 24th of September at Brunswick Library, Brunswick Town Hall and the Coonahan Gallery. Uh, you can find out more info at mbff.org. AU. Now, Jeff, in terms of the program, you said a lot of it is concentrated on the weekend, but the workshops are kicking off earlier on the 18th. Yes, and not to disappoint, but um, they are they they we were we were just um, tremendously um, encouraged by the response, and they sold out right away, so they are ticketed. But yeah, so during the week, we are having um, uh, several workshops that are based in the gallery. There is this um, wonderful um, sense of in families, uh, a drive for a lot of parents that we find to um, connect their kids to creative uh, experiences, creative hands-on experiences. And there's just a thirst there. And it was so wonderful to be able to put that out and ha- have them have that get connected right away. So one day we're, we're doing a, a shadow puppetry workshop. Another day we're doing a, a learn to beatbox workshop. With Mal Webb. With Mal Webb. And I should oh, say for a all... fantastic th- performer and That's a lovely fellow. That's right. I should say with all these as well that uh, workshops and also the, the performance experiences, like, it is very much in our mind that this... What this is not is come drop your kids off and then you go sit in the corner and, and sit on your phone. We very much want you to be able to come and participate to a degree. I know as a parent myself that when I watch shows... Uh, I often watch, if, if my kids are beside me, I sort of watch it through them. I sort of check in with them. I'm, I'm always looking over to see like, oh, did that work? Yeah, that was funny. You're right. That is funny. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I feel this is quite a similar thing that we're trying to do here, that we're trying to have these shared experiences. There's a, um, I think we kick off on the Monday with a, um, a Strange Garden, which is a cardboard uh, sculpture and uh, installation um, Eliza, activity. With, Eliza Jane Gilchrist. Yep. And then we have, uh, what else we have? We have a, a, a tiny publisher. So we've got, um, again, Elsa Wilde, the uh, local author, who's coming and, and going to show kids how to make a, lead them through a process of making their own collage a book that then gets photocopied and folded. And so they'll have their own sort of um, uh, own self-published um, uh, manuscript. And then, um, what's the other? Is well, there then, another and then in the Coonahan Gallery, we've got Finding a Poem with Dr. Denise Chapman, who's actually a, um, a lecturer at Monash in children's literature, but she will be doing a creative writing workshop with Fats for Tages 10 and up in the gallery on the weekend. There's still places available for that one. So during the week, we tried, we're trying to percolate along and begin the festival with, with a bit of a, a whisper as we sort of grow to the Friday uh, opening uh, that Tim described with the choir. And all these experiences, we feel that there's a point of entry for kind of any family. <laughs> there's no reason not to come. There's things that are free. There's things that are in the daytime. There's things that are uh, in the evening time. There's things in the afternoon, on the weekend. Um, but w- we do, I guess, um, I, like it's funny, handing out flyers now, you, you do get a sense how flat out people are. People are busy. And when you're designing flyers, when you're designing websites now, I'm, I'm, Tim can speak to this as well, like it's so interesting how I feel more and more you, you you're – Maybe, maybe it's the TikTok effect. You've just got this tiniest window with which to engage and grab some attention or give them that little bit of information to say, hey, have a peek at this. Have a little bit. Look look, look at this a little more. It seems like going, getting someone to scan a QR code and go to a website is, um, is sort of the first big hurdle that you need to get. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and I think we're acknowledging that we're saying that, yes, you know, people are a bit uh, strapped financially at the moment and people are also incredibly time poor. But, um, yeah, give us, give us your kids. We'll take <laughs> care of them. Uh, come along as well. Um, cause I, I do think that there is something that, that can both in performance and participation and in installation in, in creating that there will be something at the Mary Beck family festival that, that should fit for, for whatever, um, 
yeah, whatever families might be looking for. Because this is school holidays, so everybody's looking for stuff. And, Tim, in terms of the installation, for example, it sounds like it's not going to be a passive experience. It's, uh, this is an act, uh, an opportunity for kids to uh, exercise their imagination for creative, imaginative play. Totally. And also we try to make it accessible in itself in that um, anyone with on the um, ASD spectrum, it's a drop-in, drop-out experience. It's self-led, so you're not forced to be in a space. If you need to move, if you need to leave for a second, that's fine. But also, if your kid is totally imaginative, or you are too, um, there's narrative elements there for you to latch on to. We'll have a, another musician in there creating a live soundscape. We'll have a giant uh, extraterrestrial chicken puppet roaming around the space. And like Jeff said, animatronic puppets, some facilitators, and some giant projections too. So lots of sort of visual stimuli that can... Um, hopefully relate to your this, the journey of your starship. If, if it sounds like there's a lot going on, it's because there is. <laughs> <laughs> and is it mainly local artists and people you've already been it's a in mix. contact with and networked with? Yeah, it's a mix. I mean, we did find there was, a, there was a bit of a struggle early on that was sort of on the learning curve with so many artists that go to Edinburgh and overseas in August and then often stay, stay away for, for September as well. Uh, but there's a good, I'd say about half the artists involved uh, have some connection to, to Marybeck. And I should very quickly as well give a real shout out to um, so, so the, the the financial uh, foundations for this festival, which is Marybeck Council through their their Flourish Arts uh, grant program, mm. and then even beyond that, Council have been so supportive about uh, helping us out and just basically saying yes to whatever uh, we, we kind of asked for. And then Brunswick Library sort of hopped on board as well, and we've really managed to align something with. Um, what what happens in in libraries over school holiday periods and then Cunahan Gallery so there's just I mean we're 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 just we're two local artists we're not actually working on behalf of council so this was a vision that we had and they've been very very generous with the support that they've lent and yeah it's been pretty amazing I think as as a resident of of, of Brunswick myself I, I in some ways I want to show off the, the wonderful resources we have artistically in our community but also the um, I think the support that the council is putting behind this in, in the spaces that council have. I mean, just the atrium and the town, town hall. I had never, most people, unless you go to a wedding or I actually, no, there was a vaccination thing there, I think, as well. But most people would never sort of engage with those spaces. So it's actually quite tremendous. The, the atrium is so interesting. It's this sort of indoor, outdoor courtyard area. I think I went in years ago once for some sort of maker's market or something. So it's, it's, it's quite tremendous, I think, as well, to be able to engage with these uh, spaces in the community um, and hopefully be engaging with with the local performers as well. I mean, it's, again, to go back to your very first point, this is where I think we're coming from with this, that you don't have to run off to the CBD uh, and pay top dollar. We do have wonderful uh, experiences for families that can happen right in, right in your backyard. The inaugural Marybeck Family Festival is running from the 18th to the 24th of September at Brunswick Library, Brunswick Town Hall and the Coonahan Gallery. And as we said, most events are free or low cost. Go to mbff.au for full program details. Tim and Jeff. Thank you both for joining us here in the studio. Melanie and Chuka Hillman has joined Thanks. me Thanks in the much. studio. Melanie is directing Triple R. What happened on the way to the forum. Uh, words, uh, lyrics and music by the late, great Stephen Sondheim. Uh, Melanie is not only directing this production, but you're also now a co-artistic director of Watch This, the Melbourne's dedicated, indeed Australia's only dedicated Sondheim repertory company. That is correct, Richard. I am, which is a wonderful position to hold. Uh, my co-artistic director is Mr Dean Dreberg, who is very busy in Manila at the moment as the director of International Hamilton. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> so I'm flying solo at the moment, but he's always there, available if I need him. <laughs> and you also have a very talented cast. And one of the things that's particularly interesting about this cast is this is a production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum uh, with an all-female identifying cast. Yes, that's correct. It's the first time in the world uh, that's been done and we had to obviously apply for permission to do so. I was going to ask, how did the Sondheim estate react? Well, actually, they were really generous and were quite keen on the idea. So um, when I approached it, I basically discussed that there are certain things in this show that... Um, once written in 1962, may have flown, but for audiences of 2023, they're fairly, um, I guess, interesting would be a good way to put it, especially its attitude towards females. So my idea of 
casting it with an all-female identifying cast was really just to look at how those words coming out of female mouths may sound different or land differently to audiences of today. And um, while Sondheim has always very clearly said he's not into gimmicks in his show, uh, the Sondheim family estate decided that this was not a gimmick, thank goodness, and were very interested in what we were going to do with it. So we were very lucky. Which is... Uh, what you've touched on there is acknowledging the way that companies, contemporary companies, have to grapple with the canon and grapple with works of the past, which have dated and are, some, for example, the the uh, the current, I think, uh, production of Miss Saigon that's playing in Sydney. Um, Arts Hub sent along a Vietnamese-Australian writer to critique and review that, for example, going... Its stereotypes were pretty uh, frustrating even when it was first presented. What about now? So, yeah, that that notion of how you honour the past while also interrogating it. Yes, and I think it's it's something that we have to do, I think, to keep these works alive. And when we first, I guess, had a look at Forum, I'm not going to lie, I did panic and I think, how on earth is this going to work? Because um, whilst all the characters are ancient tropes, the female characters seem to... Well, only two of the characters actually get to speak, for a start. One of those is a virgin prostitute and the other is your typical nagging crone. And then there's also six women who don't get to speak at all who are sex slaves, basically. And um, how do we present that in today's society, especially after the Me Too movement, but still keep what is fundamentally a really funny show um, because, you know, that none of those things are particularly funny. So how do we do that? And um, what I wanted to explore was could it be done by just having these words come out of female mouths? And I think, I think most people are actually finding it really entertaining. It's really interesting some of the lines when you sit in the audience and you hear people go, oh, and I love that because I'm like, that's what we want. We want you to hear those lines and sort of say, oh, okay, yep, that's not a nice thing to say without, I guess, judging the character but just hearing that those things are still said today but they're not so acceptable anymore. For people who've not seen A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum before, talk to us a little bit about the musical. I mean, it's set in ancient Rome. Uh, It is by Stephen Sondheim, so you expect uh, witticism and cleverness and creativity. Yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It, it was his first published or performed work that he wrote both the lyrics and the music to. Um, and it is, as you said, based on characters written in 200 BC. So they are all very, I guess, stylized characters. Um, but it's definitely very firmly in the world of farce and vaudeville, which I think also for audiences of today can be quite interesting. A lot of people haven't seen that sort of theatre for a long time. And so you sort of have to go in there just understanding that while, of course, there is truth in the whole thing, it's it's pretty madcap crazy. There's, a you know, of course, a big chase scene where people go in and out of doors and, (laughs) you know, it is very heightened, shall we say. But I think think that's still funny. um, It is. And the words are so very witty and the book is very clever and it's just about, I think... Suspending your your joy and letting it, letting it all sort of flow through you, but also uh, enjoy. I mean, some of the music still is, even though he was so young when he wrote it, you, you can hear all those wonderful Sondheim esque things that's in the score. And whilst it's probably not as sophisticated as Sunday in the Park with George or even Into the Woods, there is still that really typical Sondheim. I'm going to say genius in in the score, which is just so beautiful. Now, for you as director, uh, we've already talked about some of the challenges with the work, but what what you've just touched on the the farcical aspect of it, fast term uh, is so kind of so requires split second timing from cast members. For example, like one door closes, another one has to open instantly for for people to just miss each other as they step in and out of rooms and chase each other and so forth. Talk to us about that aspect of honing this production to to get it tight and sharp? Well, great question because we do have a very short rehearsal time. So, Welcome to independent theatre. That's that's right. Thanks for coming. Um, But 
I am quite proud to say that I think the greatest thing I've done is cast an extraordinary cast. And amongst that cast are people who have had a lot of experience in this style, including um, Australia's own Judith Roberts, who was actually in the original production of Forum back in 1964 in Australia, so the first Australian production back in 1964. And she joins us um, playing the role of Erroneous and um, her extraordinary knowledge has really assisted me in the rehearsal room too just to get some of those stylistic things happen and um, basically yeah we just we just drilled it from then on. Um, Charmaine Gorman is playing the lead role of Pseudalus. Charmaine is actually Judith's daughter along with the late great Reg Gorman. So Charmaine grew up in that style as well uh, and we have a few cast members who have who have done this style before as well as some amazing young talent um, such as Mel O'Brien and Milo Hartle who are up and coming well music theatre stars but also done a lot of comedy and so I think what you'll see when you come along is a real um, array of comedic styles that we've tried to tie in so that there is as the song says something for everyone. (laughs) Now the original production itself yes it's a musical but it's also a comedy it's also quite bawdy Uh, And that boardiness, again, is something that may date. uh, And even to the point where there was a filmmaker recently who who said, was complaining, no one does sex scenes anymore. (laughs) And it's kind of like, well, they do, but there's also kind of risk involved and intimacy coordinators and so forth. For you, how does that, the boardy humour of the play work today? Obviously, we've already acknowledged some of the the sexist tropes that are being uh, uh, kind of that you are deliberately examining and highlighting in this production. But yeah, I think that's a great question because when reading it the first time, you're like, "Oh my goodness, is that funny anymore?" Um, and I think I think one of the advantages of having an all female cast is that there is less of that dare I say predatory feel on the stage. Um, and so we've played up definitely some of the boardiness, but we've also taken away, especially in the courtesan scene where the courtesans come out one, one at a time and present themselves to be sold, we've, I've, we've taken some of the sexuality out of that particular scene with, with the girls and made them more style, um, different styles of, of music theatre, for example. There's a bit of a fossey number and all that sort of stuff in there. Um, but there is still that that sort of bawdy base humour that I think is funny. I think it's funny. But yeah, I do think that having female on female is is quite an interesting way to look at it. And we did get an intimacy coordinator to come in for a couple of our scenes because there is a kissing scene and stuff like that. And that in itself was really interesting um, and fascinating. And then you sort of so you take that at its, its really raw level and then you just build on top of that so that it becomes quite quite ridiculous in a way, yeah. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum is currently showing at Chapel Off Chapel, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran, and I'll give all the booking dates and details shortly. Now, it's running through until the 24th, so you've already kind of presented to audiences. What's the reaction been like? Because I, I say this a lot on the show, but... A stage work is never ready and never finished until an audience is there to react and respond to it. And for, and I think suddenly performers are going, I didn't know that line was funny. That's so true, Richard. And I think, yeah, especially for a comedy, you really need that feed- feedback from an audience. And I think our cast were well and truly ready when we had previews last Friday. Um, and it's true. Sometimes you, you think this is a really funny line and then you give it and it's not. And then other lines, yeah, you exactly like, oh, that was funny, that's great. And I think um, I th- definitely the, the cast are enjoying it, but we've had some wonderful reviews already. Uh, the, the feedback from people is that it's really interesting, that it's fun, that it's a style that not everyone has seen before. And I just encourage people to come along, you know, if you just need a laugh, come along because it is definitely funny. And if you want to see some of the deeper things that we've put in there, um, social comment, great. But if you just want to come along and enjoy some extraordinary singing, like this, I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is probably the best sung forum ever because often it's cast by people who 
put a song over, whereas we have 10 extraordinary vocalists in there as well. So some of the songs, like Everybody Ought to Have a Maid, which is definitely a bit of an old hoofer song, I've got four amazing singers coming in and, and singing that, which just to me adds some fun to the whole thing. And talk to us about some of the other creatives that you're working with as well. So Trevor Jones is the musical director, for instance. Look, Trevor is a gem in Melbourne and Australia. Um, I needed somebody to come in who could take the score, completely rearrange it for our instrumentation and, of course, putting it all in keys that female voices could sing. Um, And he was lovely when I contacted him and he said, oh, shouldn't you find a woman? And I said, well, yes, but I want you. So... It's not, whilst it is a majority of female in the creatives, we've got Trevor in as a, our token male, <laughs> but he's, he's an extraordinary human and he's done a beautiful job on this um, amazing score. And, and, you know, he's a vocalist as well as a pianist and an all-round extraordinary musician, so we're really glad to have him, which is wonderful. Um, our set design is designed by Sarah Tullock, who has worked with us before, and it, we've gone very minimalist, and it's really, really stark and beautiful. So when you enter the space, you actually get this beautiful feeling of Roman columns and things like that. And then, of course, our normal uh, resident designer, Rob Zawinski, has done our lighting for us, which, again, is is simple. We have the old footlights up so that in our chase scene you get that real feeling of old vaudeville feel. Um, and we have a young costume designer with us called Jemima Johnston who has done some beautiful work with the costumes, keeping them... Because one of the things I was really keen to do is not dress the women as men, but just have them as... They're clearly women. We can see that they're women. Um, what does that mean? And I'm not sure if that might confuse some people in the audience, but just go in there and go, OK, I can see they're women, got it, and go with the flow. And I think, yeah, I think the costumes are great. So, yeah, that's what we've done there. And look, a final question... Why Sondheim? You're the co-artistic director of a dedicated Sondheim <laughs> repertory company that produces a Sondheim work every year, a range of works. What is the allure for this particular composer slash lyricist? It's a great question. I think, well, I like to say that Sondheim is the Shakespeare of music theatre. Um, all artists love to do Sondheim because it's it's complex and it's difficult and it makes you want to, you know yell and shout when you're learning it because it's so difficult but it's also he is a humanist in down in the core all his musicals are about human people like obviously human people but what we all go through so if you look at something like Sunday in the Park with George it's not about George Seurat he didn't write a musical about this particular painter he wrote a musical about art and artists and what that means and so we can go along and we can all connect in some way um And I think that's what is really attractive to artists playing it. But I also think Sondheim is not necessarily a big commercial success. So the big companies are a bit loath to take Sondheim on. And if they do, they're opera companies. And no offence to opera companies, but Sondheim always said he wanted actors who could sing because he felt, again, that the words, the lyrics were the most important thing. And so I think to have a company that specialises in that and casts people who understand that and work with that, it's an opportunity for people to come along and actually see these extraordinary works that will live on for sure. And, and they're just... I think it's... Yeah, it's like seeing... It's, he's a master and I think it's really important to keep that sort of work alive in our world. And whilst there's wonderful, wonderful new works happening all the time and we love new works, but also to tap back into these extraordinary pieces that are there and they will last because they are humanist and they speak to us today. And they're also, in this instance, affordably priced, 50 to 60 bucks for tickets. So if you were looking at a big blockbuster musical and going, I don't have several hundred dollars to drop on tickets for show X, Y or Z, (laughs) come along and see a funny thing happened on the way to the forum at Chapel Off Chapel, uh, 12 Little Chapel Street, Paran, running until the 24th of September. You can book by going to chapeloffchapel.com.au. You can find out more about Watch This, the company presenting it, by going to www.watchthis.net.au. And I've been chatting with Melanie Hillman, who is directing this production of A Funny Thing Happened on the way to the forum at Chapel Off Chapel, as I said, until the 24th of September. Melanie. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
Now, my next guests have joined us in the studio to talk about the Collective Polyphony Festival, which is running from the 2nd of September until the 28th of October uh, at a range of exhibition spaces, seven exhibition spaces uh, all up uh, across Melbourne, but also in Kyneton. So building communities, uh, creating a polyphony of voices and artistic ideas and inspiration. I'm joined in the studio by the uh, artistic director of the Collective Polyphony Festival, uh, Nina uh, Sanade, Sanadze. Yes, Bajan. Uh, I got there and the, I even wrote it out phonetically and I still stumbled. I do apologise. I right. will get better. Uh, and also joined by Camille Perry from Collective Agitation, one of the artist collectives uh, taking part in the festival. Hello. Camille, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So, Nina, we'll start with you. The, the idea of uh, linking together a range of, what, seven exhibition spaces and ten local and interna international artist collectives, that's quite an undertaking. Yes, it uh, seems quite uh, a big uh, project, but, uh, you know, I started it myself and now I have a support team of five emerging curators and a photographer helping out and all the volunteering and, you know, uh, collectives and spaces that um, come forward. And so we put it together, even without funding, because there is so much will to work together and collaborate and just the, the timing must be right because I was listening to James Nguyen before and he's also collaborating and there's something in the air. We want to do this positive kind of um, thing. Um, I guess it's um, a protest in a very positive way to say, yeah, uh, we want to create some, uh, bring these disparate voices that are so disjointed often in the world. I think right now it feels a bit fragmented and um, I guess it's the movement into a positive sort of direction and artists supporting artists, but also hearing multiple kind of voices from different um, diasporas and agendas and, um, yes. Yeah. And, uh, Camille, to bring you into the conversation, the artist collectives are certainly not a new thing in the world of the arts, but talk to us a little bit about collective agitation, about the, 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 the group and its aims. Yeah, for sure. So collective agitation is a beautiful fusion of chemistry enthusiasts as well as photographers and artists. So we kind of look at that intersection between the creation of arts and like the science and alchemy that bring them into fruition, especially in photography. Um, yeah, and I guess we kind of came together with the intention of kind of questioning the rules of photographic practice through a sustainable ecological lens. So we... Well, given the chemicals involved exactly. with kind of development, for example. Yeah, for sure. So we look at basically extracting polyphenol content from uh, like forageable materials in order to use that as like a developing agent in for printing photos. And so a lot of our work is coming together and doing a lot of like alchemic research as well as photographic practical like arts based research as well and then seeing how we can kind of speak to each other in that way and seeing how um, that scientific perspective can really aid art practice in the same way around the other way you know. And what's the benefit of working with a collective in this creative way? I feel like I guess it's the you challenge each other as well as you kind of help each other grow and you, I don't know, it's like it fights this myth of individualism that is so prevalent in the way that we think. I mean, down to like the individual body, we don't even consider the gut biota and all these living entities inside of us. Like individuality doesn't exist. It's kind of this myth that we've built an entire like society around and collectives kind of challenge that and they say, no, actually people... We're like the bacteria in our, inside of our bodies, you know. We're a system of people who all work together. We're constantly in collaboration. Our lives are collaborations. And so it kind of just says, like, no, you know, which is really beautiful. And, Nina, then that, I guess, the festival as a whole then kind of embodies those ideas, that notion of uh, collective action and community action as well, for example, instead of the kind of atomized, fragmented lives that so that, that 
I don't know, the, the division that you referenced, the division that's growing in society, that um, uh, you can't even have a civil conversation with somebody who votes for a different political party to you online now because it just quickly develops into shouting and, and hate speech and whatever it may be. So the festival is yeah, kind of re remembering and reconnecting that notion of uh, collective action, the greater good uh, and a, a communal society. Yeah. Yes, and um, that's why I use this poly uh, musical term, polyphony, where it might be able, the art can bring disparate voices as well. You know, when you have people in an orchestra playing, they're not of the same political views, but they're still able to create something beautiful together. And so it's about having a uh, dialogue and hearing each other and, and just through this positive making of art, uh, uh, creating this polyphony that we can talk, we don't have to shout. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, I guess what this festival also for me, why the collectives are so important is that uh, I guess it resists the sort of commercial impulse that is sort of a little bit consumerism, a consumeristic sort of attitude to art growing and kind of that... Um, I feel it brings something from the 20th century that the Heidi Circle or the 70s, this kind of where the art uh, was about art making. Honestly, there is not much money to be made in art. And why is all this competition happening? Because I'm in it uh, for the love of it. And I just want to be with people who are also passionate about making things. And it's just um, things we can do together. Um, I couldn't do it by myself, you know. And um, it was very clear with the exhibition of my own collective. I'm in two collectives, the Shrewd Collectives. We have a show now at Gertrude. And this last show that we just put together for the festival, um, people say, is it made by one person? And But it's so complex that one person couldn't have made it. So there is something new in that because it's five voices making one kind of collaborative thing. One person couldn't make it uh, yet um, a group uh, exhibition couldn't achieve that as well to be so in tune. So it's a lot of trust and, um, and time that has and conversations that allow us to make this work that is so unique that only a collective well-attuned to each other could make. So, Which is a fascinating artistic outcome, but also uh, a gentle way to resist neoliberalism, the politics of which have infused our our body politic, our social lives for for decades, uh, which focus on the individual. Uh, as Maggie Thatcher, the great champion of neoliberalism, bleh, uh, said, "There is no such thing as society." That's mm. what neoliberalism wants us mm. to believe. Collectively, everybody involved with the collective Polyphony Festival is breaking that idea down uh, and. Coming back to, it's interesting that you mentioned the Heidi Circle, for example, and work from the 70s, from, from decades before uh, kind of neoliberalism had really infiltrated the world. Exactly. And I didn't think about it when I was thinking of the festival. It's more like a utopian kind of idea. But now that I made it, I realised I'm actually bringing something from the past that we lost. And that's the feedback that I was getting. It's mm. that we need more of this in Melbourne, something that is lost in the art scene, that kind of improvised art making that is not for any commercial sort of necessarily use. And... Uh, you know, the work by collectives is not necessarily collectible or as interesting. And so we resist uh, the neoliberalism through that. And it's a truly creative sort of environment that we're creating um, of exchange of ideas and um, supporting each other and creating the ecosystem environment where things can thrive in a very genuine, creative way. It also challenges... Um, that idea that we're all machines, that we live inside of this machine and we are all these cogs and parts and that we don't have the ebbs and flows of people, you know? Yeah. And when you come together as a collective, you get to see up close that people aren't machines, you know? We, we can't just produce at this obscene rate. Exactly. And we can't just, yeah, see ourselves as just makers for the sake of profit. Like, we are coming together and we're able to see... Yeah, the yep. difference in how people make... Yes, we, we, we sort of write our rules in a way and we write our manifesto and we kind of think of how to reinvent things. Um, that's pretty exciting and young. <laughs> and I'm not a very young person, so, you know, that's kind of... Uh, feels like things can be shifted. Camille, the opportunity to then see the work and engage with uh, the work of other collectives must also be 
kind of quite fascinating for this oh, festival as well because absolutely. again it's it's about kind of expanding horizons and blurring boundaries absolutely and we've been le- working with the london alternative photography collective so that's been so like so exciting and interesting and also posed its own challenges like you can't go and get a beer and chat about something you know you can't have these kind of intimate conversations which I feel like the art is built around you know this intimacy that you're making within collaborators and so yeah working around those challenges and thinking about how do we embody those methods of communication how do we come together when we're separated by such a distance Um, but it's been such an interesting process and we've dug up an old fax machine which has been a fun fun challenge is basically getting the London Alternative Photography Collective to participate in this shared document where they would be sending information to us um, on the other side of the world through this machine that was just found out of someone's shed in Glen Iris with a roll of paper in it and yeah. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Nina Sanadze and Camille Perry uh, about the Collective Polyphony Festival running from the 2nd of September until the 28th of October. Nina, as we said, there's seven exhibition spaces involved. Uh, talk to us about what those spaces are and how you encouraged everybody to come along on this journey together. Yes, so tonight uh, at Blindside we have three collective ex- uh, collectives opening their exhibitions. Uh, so Camille's uh, Collective uh, Agitation collaborated with London um, Alternative Photography Society in Gallery 2 and in Gallery 1 we, see, we have Seaweed Appreciation Society International. So these three collectives in Blindside that open tonight, the question how you can create art in the time of environmental crisis and so uh, I put them together deliberately in that space to kind of um, think about these topics. Um, Then we have two collectives, exhibitions already opened at Mary Cherry and Gertrude Contemporary next door spaces uh, there is two collectives um, Shrewd Collective and Last Collective, both uh, five female identified artists in each collective next door and it's really interesting to see um, how these two spaces came together uh, I'm in one of the collectives uh, Shrewd Collective and have worked there um, we also opened uh, with the Inkind Collective and Kind and Stockroom. That's a really big exhibition with a performance by Tina Stefano. That was at the opening. And so quite a g- big group of uh, new emerging collective um, of sort of various diasporic voices. Then next week, um, also exciting, we have Saluhan Filipina Collective opening at the 7th Gallery uh, with a massive exhibition that taking over three spaces in the gallery. And um, we're very um, excited to have on board the picture-making fellas, the Indigenous Ballarat Collective. Um, you might have seen them at Melbourne now, and they'll be exhibiting... Uh, on Saturday, the exhibition opens at Dancinger Gallery. And we have also Chinese Museum Artists Collective that have just opened at the testing grounds with a massive, um, you know, two-level exhibition and the public work with the uh, photographs of the Chinese stallholders and their stories. Uh, they're on the posters there. And on Saturday night, we're also going to have Chinese performances at testing grounds, which is um, sort of at the back in the parking sort of lot of the Victoria, Queen Victoria Market. Um, everyone is welcome to all these events. And lastly, we have this um, amazing Indonesian con- conglomerate collective um, called Goods, Good School, which uh, includes um, Ruan Grupa, uh, which uh, a famous collective, uh, probably the most famous in the world, that uh, curated documenta. And so we invited more as to learn from them. And so they'll be doing a live artist talk on the 30th of uh, September at Testing Grounds. So it's free to come and listen and ask questions and and then we're going to play a game called Knowledge Market, appropriately at the Victoria Market, except it will be sort of participatory game uh, that they have played around the world and um, facilitated by one of their sort of associates. And, uh, yeah, that's mainly the program um, across these sort of seven spaces. And you can find out full program details about the exhibitions, details about the collectives and the different galleries and spaces involved by going to collectivepolyphony.com. That's collectivepolyphony.com to to learn more about the Collective Polyphony Festival. Camille, 
it strikes me as, I mean, an exhibition that unites so many spaces, that brings so many collectives together, that is breaking down the barriers between uh, spaces in the city and spaces in regional Victoria, for example. This all feels incredibly positive. Are you hoping that this is perhaps a sign, a, a future direction for the art world, greater collaboration, kind of more conversation? Absolutely. I think the best work happens when we collaborate. And I think even when we have solo shows or solo ideas it's never you're never actually creating work as an individual you know you're always going to someone and being like what do you think someone please tell me the truth I need help because that's we're human we need connection that's kind of what builds the the best things in the world I feel like that's how we've created them is coming together that's how we make change and I think that there's something so special about encouraging people to facilitate those relationships in a long-term way you know watching people grow and having a collective like see, watching the, the people I'm in collective agitation with, Luca, Lara and Bella, grow together with me and working together is so beautiful. I feel like, yeah, our work has shifted in different ways and we understand each other in different ways, which, yes. yeah, speaks to something so important. And for me, the whole collective came about because of um, how I was grateful uh, to my Shoot Collective for sort of holding my hand and supporting me throughout my career and always I consulted with them, you know. So even though making my solo work, it was always a way of collaborating, always talking things through them and just having that trust circle and I, uh, the collective Polyphony Festival though wants to investigate all sorts of modes of working you know there is different kinds of more, and so we look at different styles of collectives that there are some are more curatorial based and some are really small or big and so this is the other thing that we want to inquire about and we'll see how the festival grows yes hopefully that creates um, an impulse to make more collectives and yeah, proliferate on that. Yeah. yeah. Watch this space. Uh, jump online, collectivepolyphony.com for more details about the Collective Polyphony Festival, uh, including all the different collectives involved, all the different exhibitions presented and the many galleries and art spaces that are participating. The festival runs through until the 28th of October. So don't panic. You've got time to see stuff. But you can get along to Blindside tonight. Uh, yes. Uh, which six till eight. Six till the eight uh, for the opening, and that's at level fourteen, room seven of the Nicholas Building on Swanson Street in the city. Uh, and more info at blindside.org.au. Nina and Camille, thank you both for coming in. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you, Richard. Thank you for kind of the festival itself as well, Nina. Yeah, it how sounds, exciting, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's so exciting. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks thank again. You, Richard. Bye. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. My next guest has joined us on the line. Dr. Craig Cormack, OAM, uh, has written across a wide range of genres and topics fiction, non fiction, books for children, books for adults, literary fiction, speculative fiction, journalism, and more. He joined us to talk about a book published earlier in the year called A Darker Shade of Moonlight, a creative biography, which is, as the name suggests, uh, a biography about the bushranger Captain Moonlight. But if you're thinking, oh, a bit of dry history, this is not what you are thinking. Craig, good morning. Good morning. Lovely to be with you. Now, before we begin to talk about the quite unique and fascinating way you've written this new book, uh, let's talk about bushrangers generally and Captain Moonlight specifically. You have a bit of a thing for bushrangers, don't you? I do, and look, who doesn't? Let's face it, they're the bad boys of Australian history. Um, you know, they, 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 were, they should have been our cowboys and Indians when we were growing up, but um, due to censorship laws, they were not. Um, the early bushranger film industry was stymied by states passing laws prohibiting the making of films that depicted criminals, therefore bushrangers, getting the better of the police in any way. And so, boof, disappeared. And it's only been in the last, you know, late 20th century that people have really started rediscovering and not just the mainstream bushrangers, Ned Kelly and Ben Hall, but, but lots of interesting ones. Uh, the, the women bushrangers, the Chinese bushrangers, people like Moonlight, who were likely a gay bushranger, etc., etc. So a lot of interesting history there. 
Now, the idea of uh, a gay bushranger, a queer bushranger, is a fascinating one, particularly because Captain Moonlight and his gang lived at a time when the, the codification of, of sexuality uh, wasn't really a thing as we know it today. You, kind of, you didn't necessarily have a, a homosexual identity. Um, you just... Uh, may have engaged in homosexual acts, but uh, straight and gay definitions didn't necessarily apply. But why do we think or why do you deeply believe that uh, Moonlight himself was queer? So it, it's a really interesting point you raise here about how can we look at the past through the lens of the present and really hope to understand it. And, and we have to look widely at documentation and letters and so on. And you could say, well, on one aspect, and, you know, earlier some historians were a bit hesitant to say Moonlight was queer. But once his um, jail cell letters were uncovered and the way he writes about his love for his the, one of his boys, James Nesbitt, who he met while in jail, it's very apparent. It's, it's, it's in his heart. And, you know, that they exchange rings made of hair. He won't wrap around his finger. He went to the, the um, gallows asking that he be buried next to... He's, he's loved James Nesbitt. So, so even though in the past the way men would talk about love with each another or maybe even have sex with each another was very different than it was today, there's just that extra bit here that Knight is clearly emotionally tied to James Nesbitt. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the jail cell letters the, um, uh, in which he says, Nesbitt and I were united by every tie which could bind human friendship. We were one in hopes, one in heart and soul, and this unity lasted until he died in my arms. There's a, a fascinating sense of tragedy involving this story as well, of uh, lovers separated by death, but also a, a fascinating, a fascinating uh I guess a fascinating character to explore because, yes, we have these deeply passionate letters written by Moonlight about Nesbitt, including to, to Nesbitt's mum and so forth, but we also know that he was an unreliable narrator who regularly embroidered the truth. So how do you separate the, the myth-making, his own myth-making, from fact? So that's, that's a challenge for any historian slash writer, and I guess that's where... You can, a, a writer, as opposed to a historian, can take a bit more creative liberty, and which I've done with this book in, in looking at all those alternative paths that Moonlight may or may not have travelled and put them all in. And so I say, look, he may or may not have fought with Garibaldi red shirts in Italy. He may or may not have fought in the American Civil War. He may or may not have, because in some of his stories and histories, there are claims that support that, but the historical documentation does not. So would people self-invent their history? I'd go with it in the plot. And um, it's up for the reader there to decide which they think is realistic and which not. Which then gives a delightful tone to the book. Uh, I laughed aloud while reading it, which is not something I normally expect while reading an account of history. Because, as you've called it, this is subtitled A Creative Biography. And in the same way that Moonlight was creative with the truth, you've been very creative with the way you tell the story. You're using a contemporary vernacular voice, for example, rather than going for uh, a more stylized, artificial 19th century tone. That's right. And, and to an extent, every time we, we write about the past, we're pretending. You know, we're, we're adopting a voice that we hope the reader will feel is 19th century without actually being 19th century, because 19th century prose was turgid and very difficult to read. So, so we come up with a style that we want the reader to feel they're in the past, even though they might not be. So I don't even pretend. I use contemporary references. I talk about Moonlight being the boy's superhero. I talk about COVID. I talk about everything that, that expands those two pasts and the present. And so the narrator, one of his boys, who we don't have much history on whether he died or not, is telling us as if he's an old, 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 old man, still present, able to talk to us about the past. And one of the things he talks about is the, the, the rivalry between Moonlight's gang and Ned Kelly and the Kelly gang, with, uh, and not particularly depicting Ned in a very flattering light, I have to say. That's right. So, look, I'd previously done a book on Ned Kelly, and my, my wife used to say I had a bit of a Ned Kelly obsession until I took her down to the Beechworth Ned Kelly Festival one year, and she met some of the people there and said, no, no, you don't have an obsession, you're just interested. So we met some people who live it, really live in Kelly. And once you get deeper into the history, you realise beyond the mask, beyond the heroism, beyond all that anti-hero stuff, he was a bit of a bogan at 
Ironheart, Nate Kelly, a bit of a thug. Um, he's heroised because he was beaten by the police, but he had attempted to derail a train coming into Glen Rowan armed with policemen. And had he actually derailed that train, he'd probably be considered our first terrorist and having killed that many policemen in one fell swoop. So, you know, the, the way history plays out is is arbitrary in some ways. And, yes, I have a, have a lot of fun playing with the rivalry between the Kellys and Moonlight because they were contemporaries of, at one time. Um, Moonlight was executed the same year Ned Kelly was executed, start of the year, end of the year. And they appeal to different parts, of I think, of the Australian psyche and different... And have largely Moonlight was written out of history because of the Kelly gang. So at the time when Captain Moonlight, Andrew George Scott, um, held up the station near Wagga Wagga, he was all over the newspapers. As I say, they felt the Bushranger era was almost over, but this reignited it and they had more telegraph communication linking things up, so it was all over the newspapers. But that went out of popular history when the Kelly gang showed up wearing these masks, these iconic theatrical shootout they had at Glen Rowan. So, yeah, Moonlight and um, Kelly have a, a staff not just at the Times, but um, throughout history. In fact, Kelly at the time said if Moonlight and his gang came anywhere near him, he'd shoot him. And when Moonlight and his gang were leaving Melbourne and trying to make their way overland to Sydney, they were often mistaken. People thought they might be the Kelly gang. So, you know, a lot of contemporary and, and modern uh, rivalry there. What's also fascinating, uh, that, and one of the things you uh, portray in the book, uh, is using uh, narrative tricks that we might think of from television or film, for example, to uh, talk about Moonlight in his prison cell, and if this were, were a TV show or a film, there'd be sad music playing and so forth. But it's yeah. also yeah. fascinating that you revel in the knowledge that um, Moonlight and his gang were terrible bushrangers. Oh, they definitely. They'd barely rate an L rating. Most of them... Well, most of them never ridden a horse. Um, they, they were urban boys, you know, they were suburban urban boys. And Moonlight, much, much elder, charismatic elder guy, he gathered around in this group of five young men, um, aged between about 17 and young, low 20s. And after, he, he promised them a better life, promised them all this stuff. And so they set off on this journey to get out of the colony of Victoria and into New South Wales. They felt they could take a boat off to Fiji and live this better life. And on the way, they had no money. They had not, not enough real working guns between them. They had, um, and it was a spur of the moment thing when they were refused shelter and aid, and work and food, that they turned around and stuck up the station. So Moonlight had a criminal background. Most of the boys had petty criminal backgrounds, but they upped the ante when they stuck up the station. And when police showed up, they shot at them, took pot shots at them, and suddenly they were, you know, serious bushrangers, quite by happenstance. Now, in retelling the story of Captain Moonlight and uh, his life, Craig, uh, are you hoping that this book, along with... we And we have seen a, a resurgence of interest in, in Moonlight in recent years, yes. as you acknowledged earlier, because of the, the rediscovery of the prison letters, which were sadly never sent, never received by their intended audiences. But thanks to that fact, we have this deep first-hand uh, knowledge of, of the man and, and his grief. But... Do you hope to see him returned more and more to the national stage as somebody that Australians should know about? And when they so when they think of bushrangers, yes, they think of uh, of Mad Dog Morgan, Ned Kelly, uh, and Dan Hall, but they also think about Captain Moonlight. Yes, very much. I'd, I would love to see him as well as the other minority voices of history return to the the pantheon of bushrangers. Um, we, we do need to get beyond Ben Hall, Ned Kelly, Mad Dog Morgan, etc., and start looking at the variety. There was, and, and, and the variety of bushrangers we had was a, amazing. There was a, a, a Chinese bushranger who couldn't ride a horse well. Um, There's another one who rode an emu. There was a, um, you know, several women bushrangers, Marianne Bug, her indigenous bushrangers, um, and these people tended to have been fallen off the, the, um, you know, the, the mantle of history, replaced by the solid white Anglo heroic bushrangers, but I think we, Australia's at a point we want to relook really at our history. I mean, when I go overseas and talk to people in other countries, they keep saying, why is Australia always, always trying to reinvent its history? Why, why don't you understand your history? And I think as a young country, that's a, we have that opportunity to do that. 
whereas other European countries with you know centuries of history tend to feel a bit more settled in themselves. And we have a contested history. We have indigenous history, we have a migrant history, we have an Anglo history, we have very diverse and the full breadth of our history is not reflected in our national psyche, historical psyche. So that's why I think we keep reinventing and looking back and re-examining it, making sure it's fit for purpose for the modern times. And in terms of history, you clearly have a great interest in making history uh, relatable, understandable and available. Some of your other books, for example, your What If History of Australia books, What If Colonial Settlement Was by France Instead of Britain, for example. So again, there's clearly this passion for you about history, but ensuring that it is uh, taught or understood in an accessible way so that we all can collectively have uh, a stronger knowledge of history, and in particular those aspects of history that have been perhaps whitewashed. Yes, that's quite right. Um, history is often perceived to be boring by too many people, um, but I find it fascinating. Often it's the trick is how do you tell it? What's an alternative way to tell history that engages with people, that triggers their imagination, that gets them thinking deeper about it than just facts and figures and, and white, white men's faces? Dr Craig Cormack is the author of A Darker Shade of Moonlight, a creative biography which is published through Queer Oz Folk uh, and Interventions. Uh, it's, reta- it's a paperback, retails for $27.99. If you go to queerozfolk.com, play on queer as folk, of course, queerozfolk.com.au, you can find information about ordering a copy. It's also available in good independent bookshops and possibly even some bad independent bookshops as well. But uh, I suspect pretty much all independent bookshops, by their very nature, are good. I would, for example, su- suggest going to Hares and Hyenas to pick up a copy. Lovely. Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the program today, and uh, I look forward to uh, to Moonlight being returned to the spotlight, where he clearly deserves to be. And thank you for contributing to that to happen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 